to everything the movie podcast where we rate review and riff on every single film in the criterion collection i'm anthony and this is my very surprised friend uh and co-host sean what am i surprised by bam pow wow bam whoa it's the twin peaks segment you didn't you didn't expect it it came out of nowhere you wouldn't know you didn't know oh yeah boom every most episodes we go through a, a segment where I talk about Twin Peaks in the middle of the show, but now I put it at the beginning of the show. It it, it messed with you. Twin I Peaks fucking my, ready. Last week you I didn't can't cover do it. this to me. Uh last week I did not cover uh this segment, and this week I have to say that uh I didn't watch it either. So this week we are covering uh, a lot of weird movies about time. We're starting off with uh, Time Bandits, then we'll be moving to Branded to Kill, which is also totally about time because all movies are about time. Then we'll be talking about uh, these two movies for our picks that are about like me and the boys going going journeying somewhere where we don't know what could happen next. And uh, those movies are Journey to the Beginning of Time and Andre Tarkovsky returning again this week for Stalker. Sean, triumphantly, you, his triumphant return. What did you think of uh, this week's movies overall? Quite an eclectic mix. And also, I forgot how little Stalker was actually about time stuff. And by how little, I mean not at all. <laughs> now that's just not an element of it. Yeah, no, there's there's not... You, you said, like, oh, there's, like, some time stuff in Stalker. And I was like, yeah. Oh, time is, like, distorted in the same sure. sense that space is distorted. But, but they like, also, they very much say, that. like, we're in... Like, we have to be back by a certain time. Like, it's not like they're like, oh, and now it's night time. Oh, snap. Like, they, they are in the zone, and then they leave the zone, and then, you know, the auto zone jingle plays, and then they come back, and that's it. Like, that's yeah, the... That's, that's it. That's all that happens. It's a 15-second long movie. <laughs> it's 15 seconds, but each shot is, like, 20 minutes long. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, it is what it is. I, I found this this week pretty enjoyable. I really loved that, you know, we'll get into it, but Journey to the Beginning of Time felt like a nice light movie for all these pretty, uh, like you said, it, pretty disconnected, kind of eclectic kind of films that are all from, from different parts of the world and, and, you know, working in different mediums and genres. I, I, I found uh, I found it pretty heavy. And uh, yeah, let let's talk. Let's start us off right now. First up, we got Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits, 1981 film. Let's read what the Criterion Summary has for us today. In this fantastic voyage through time and space from Terry Gilliam, a boy named Kevin, Craig Warnock, escapes his gadget-obsessed parents to join a band of time travelers. Armed with a map stolen from the supreme being, Ralph Richardson, they plunder treasure from Napoleon, Ian Holm, and Agamemnon, Sean Connery. But the evil genius, David Warner, is watching their every move. I think he's just the evil one. I never evil genius featuring yeah, a dark, very distinctly not a genius 
Featuring a darkly playful script by Gilliam and his Monty Python cohort, Michael Palin, who also appears in the film, love him, Time Bandits is at once a giddy fairy tale, a revisionist history lesson, and a satire of technology gone awry. You have done it multiple times now, and I need to acknowledge how much it pisses me off how you say Monty Python. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's, That's what not, it says. You're speaking American English. You don't need to say it like that. I'm not speaking. I'm not when I say Monty Python. <laughs> yeah. You, Monty. dude, you really changed. <laughs> You're a lot different than when I met you, and it's fucking disgusting. What is your I, relationship uh, to uh, Monty Python? Okay, that see, that's a lot better. Now I'm starting <laughs> to get. Now I'm starting to understand you. So, I mean, I like the, the Holy Grail one. I haven't mm. seen the rest of it because I just have the, I have the mental image, which has never been contradicted, of a guy who likes Monty Python, and he's like your 52-year-old band teacher who <laughs> wears uh, suspenders sure. and ju- is the first guy in your life to tell you about Doc. It's, oh, that's no true. Yeah, no disrespect to that kind of guy, but if I was him, if I had to live in his skin for five seconds, I would kill myself. I'm gonna be that kind of guy when I grow up, and so that's why I love Monty Python. Uh, I I'm not like a huge. I wouldn't even say I'm like a huge fan or a scholar for sure. I just I I like a bunch of the movies, Life of Brian, Meaning of Life. They're they're pretty cool uh obviously holy grail is the best one i i know that people are like oh i'm a hardcore monty python fan so i know better i know monty python uh, like holy grail is not the best one no it, it is it is though I, I i watched some of the sketches on mostly on youtube so i tried to give it uh, a whirl like going in order on i think netflix at one point and it didn't really work out for me I, I listened to M- the monty python album which came out at some point i don't even know what that is. I'm sure there's some Monty Python scholar who's like, which one? And I have no idea. But I listened to an album of it, thought it was really funny. I keep on referencing the Spanish Inquisition because uh, it's basically the Twin Peaks bit, but done, you know, tastefully. And, Wait, when uh, did I do that in Twin Peaks? Remind me. No, 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 no. The, the, the the bit in I the bit see in I Python oh, is just that the was. bit that I do with Twin Peaks, uh, but better. Uh, and the Spanish Inquisition is involved. Yeah, generally I'm a you know I I I'm a big fan of Monty Python, and so uh, I've tried to check out some of other Terry Gilliam Terry Gilliam's other work. Uh, and yeah, so Time Bandits though was still a first time watch for me, and I found it pretty wacky. I was actually thinking that you were going to be anti this movie, Sean, because you know it's an '80s movie, and it very much has some of those aesthetics. Well, it's a lot more about I just fucking despise British whimsy. I, I, it's not all of it, and everything associated with it is bad, but like Monty Python. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Discworld, all that shit. So fucking annoying. I love that stuff, Sean. Come on. I hate it. I never want to ever, every time, every like two weeks, I was like, oh, you should read Discworld. It's really good. Then I crack it open and I open the first two sentences and it's like, Oh, Grand Magister Fizzlewomp Fumblethorpe accidentally cast a, a spell that made his his dog's head into a mush. What? And the whole fucking book is like, how do you people live? <laughs> it's fucking exhausting. It's good. Like, God damn. Uh, 
It I'm never gives you a rest. Not a huge Discworld fan. I have only read two books, which are uh, The Color of Magic, which is, I think, the first one, and Hogfather. Those are the only two that I've read. I think I might have only seen the Hogfather movie, which is not very good. I might be wrong. Um, but either way, you know, I, I definitely enjoy it, but mostly because I enjoy Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's the slight I'm annoyed at. What are you talking about? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I knew. I knew. My favorite book of all time next to Ender's Game, which is my, uh, which is, I was just talking to you about, which I know you like very different books, but those are my two favorite books of all time. And I, I, that's crazy. All right. Well, all right. So Britishness, you're not a big fan of Britishness. Got it. It's a fucking <laughs> fake country. I know it's been like a meme in the past few years to be like, oh, you know, nobody likes British people, which is, I mean, I'm glad that somebody is speaking out about it, but let it be known and let it be on record that I have been on that for a while. The other a thing is that books. Britain is tired. like you know one of the older countries <laughs> like it's not it's been around for a while no that's what they'll fucking tell you any given asian country oh, any yeah. province okay. in any asian country is a thousand times older than the whole oldest fucking bullshit in any area. fair enough love brits love british stuff I have, I will place, uh, my, I got a new Blu-ray today. I'm going to place next to my Hitchhiker's Guide Blu-ray and of course my Monty Python and the Holy Grail Blu-ray. Like uh, it's good stuff. Um, but, uh, what about Terry Gilliam as a director? Cause I, like I said, I've seen, um, so Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I would assume, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but that's a Sean movie through and through 100%. Um, and, and, and I've seen a couple of his other stuff. Fisher King is a good one for me. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I haven't seen the big one. I haven't seen Brazil. I haven't seen 12 monkeys. So, uh, what about you? What do you, what are you thinking? Oh, he did do 12 monkeys. I actually had seen that one. I mean that 12 monkeys, I wasn't super impressed by. And that's really as, as far as it goes. Like, I don't really have anything to say about it, but Brazil it was too whimsical, and it started pissing <laughs> me off. There's a lot to like about it. It's legitimately very visually inventive. It's structured in a pretty interesting way. It's you know, it, there, there's a lot to say about it. I get why some sure. people love it. Interesting note here. I don't know if you knew this. Brazil, at least at the time that I heard him talk about it, was Doug Walker's favorite. Really? Yeah. So wow. That's uh. That's 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 pretty heavy. Know, I mean, in the favor. Point in favor. Pretty heavy. <laughs> that's pretty heavy. Let's all uh, yeah, dissect I mean, that. No, no. I mean, my that's friend, crazy. because Nostalgia Critic lives in mm-hmm, Illinois mm-hmm. and pretty close to where I live, not to where right. I currently live. You've talked about this. I, I think you've talked about it on an early mm-hmm. episode. You're like, we got to make the pilgrimage someday. Well, he was in a fucking Target at the same time somebody I knew was, and they got a picture Ooh. of him. And I, I, I immediately grabbed my phone and I screamed at them in all caps. <laughs> I said, you need to fucking get a picture mm-hmm. with him. And they're like, no, 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 he already left, which is coward. Yep. How, how is that not your immediate, in- like your, your everything? That doesn't make any you're sense! Everything. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense! Why wouldn't you get a picture with him? Nostalgia you know? Critic, if you're listening, we do this all in, love isn't the right word, reverence. <laughs> complete odd reference like i won't i won't say like i i don't think i would say i would have a single positive feeling towards you but you are like god to 
<laughs> like you are like you led me out of the desert. You split the Red Sea for me. You're you're my everything. And I want just want to be clear. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's let me let's move through the notes. Checking off the box that says we want to have Doug Walker's babies. Yep, cool. Next up, uh, uh oh, Time yeah. Bandits. So, um as we approach this movie, I did not realize it was going to be like it's a kids movie. It's it's 100% 1000% a kids movie. I I know that some people had said that it was like oh, I liked that movie growing up in the 80s or whatever. But I assumed that it would be like I don't know, like Indiana Jones level kids movie, like, you know, adults can enjoy kind of thing. And I, you know, I don't think adults can't enjoy this movie, but this is a, this is for babies. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. I'm generally not somebody who is in support of adults rehabilitating baby sure. shit. I think it's usually pretty annoying, but there's something just so comfortable about this mm. movie. And I was trying to put my finger on it. Because I really like this thing. I actually really, really like this thing. It really surprised sure. me. Um, given that Terry Gilliam is was previously 0 for 2 for me. But it's it feels like... And this is going to sound stupid, but let me try and explain and we can arrive at something that isn't as stupid. Like movie. Gotcha. It's because every single part of it takes place very obviously on a set. It's not trying to hide it. And it's like very classical, almost old Hollywood in a sense. Yes, style 100%. Sets, yeah. It's like, here is, you know, we're going to be in ancient Greece. And what are we going to do? Well, we have vaguely Mediterranean <laughs> and Middle Eastern props. And we're just going to throw and them And Sean Connery, by the way. <laughs> and Sean Connery as Agamemnon. Why the fuck not? He got a tan. Back in those days, that was, you could play <laughs> any race if you got a tan. You'd like come back from Florida and they'd be like, oh, great. We got to cast this guy as Iago or whatever. Here's, oh, we, we have our Shaka Zulu. I didn't mean Iago. Folks. I meant Othello. I'm an idiot, you know. Oh, yeah. Iago yeah. was like. <laughs> yeah, he was played by Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> Pretty good. But you see what I'm yeah. kind of saying here is like, it's, there's oh. a comforting sense in how kind of like corny and childishly fantastic yes. like this is this is how a child envisions time traveling to all these different mm-hmm. periods because he doesn't know that much about it he's like oh you know the middle ages what are they well, who they got there well like robin mm-hmm. hood and there's a forest and there's <laughs> robin hood who is fictional <laughs> like who isn't yeah. real like that is they didn't even choose King Arthur where people are like, well, you know, King Arthur wasn't real, but like the legend exists and there's like all these like, you know, what yeah. they might be based on right. some kind. Yeah, of sure. There was there's a lot of, of, of reasons that the King Arthur sprung up that are rooted in real life things. Robin Hood is very, very fictional. <laughs> it's like if a movie made in 3200 was about a kid traveling <laughs> back to like the 1980s and being like oh hey it's the famous historical figure the oh man that was a good specific yeah <laughs> i was waiting for the specific that was pretty good i i was gonna say like luke yeah. skywalker but that one luke. doesn't really work because that's obviously takes place in a completely different place but you know that's cool or if they travel back to the 1970s and they were like oh we get to meet ronald reagan <laughs> yeah Ronald Reagan. We get to meet, I mean, or traveling, actually like, or traveling so, to present day and so, then being like, oh my gosh, uh, we get to meet a British person. 
Yeah. Dude, like, when I was a kid and I thought Ronald Reagan was real, like, I would just, yeah, I can't even count the number <laughs> of times I would just wake up in a cold sweat. My parents had to come in and be like, no, 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 he's, don't worry, he's not real. Mm. He's not, there's no such thing oh as my Ronald gosh. Reagan. And if anything were to ever, ever, ever contradict that knowledge that I have, then I would immediately do something that everyone else. Ronald Reagan, he's a fictional character in the movie uh, Walker, (laughs) as we covered on this podcast. Go listen to that episode. And Bedtime for Bonzo, my two favorite (laughs) movies. And listen, I like Ronald Reagan. I love him. And if he were president, I would agree with every one of his policies, saying that, you know, kind of carte blanche without knowing what they would be. But if he, like, I just can't, He's just not a guy that should be real. It's like at the end of Space Jam 2 when LeBron made Bugs Bunny real. Like, you're going against God. I love Bugs, but he shouldn't <laughs> be here. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, this is this is delightful. Yeah, we're really going I off just, of the rails on it, but I think that this is just going to be an off-the-royals episode. You know it should not reflect... It sparks our motherfucking It does, yes! It makes us feel like a damn 100%. I, I also love the characterization of uh, the Supreme Being, or god and the characterization of you know the evil one or you know the devil as as Mm -hmm. very similar to that vibe of they're these fairy tale-ish kind of beings there's this this child's perception of what those beings would be it's like oh god would be like this authority figure who's like in a suit and kind of old and is like walking around he's not like judeo-christian god or anything like that like with a big old beard Mm -hmm. like in in traditional like dante's inferno paradise lost type style but he is in sort of the modern version of that which is like i don't know he's like tired he doesn't want to be doing this stuff anymore and like then there's the devil and he's this kind of like guy who like i don't know is really evil and shoots lasers out of his hands which are like got got these long long claws on him and i i think that's very very childish i think that that works a lot you know what this reminds me of I don't know if uh, Sean. I doubt that this is going to be within your. Well, oh, it might be. Have you ever heard of Bible Man? I love. You <laughs> love. He's so fucking sick, dude. I'm so glad that Bible Man is real and can defend <laughs> me from all of the evil. So, like, it's, if he was turned out to be fictional, like, ooh. for those not in the know, Bible Man is a pretty terrible direct-to-dvd series about a superhero who teaches christian values to kids he was like he's kind of like second par veggie tales where it's like you know you go to the store the christian bookstore you're sitting in the corner bored out of your mind and they'd play like all those like veggie tales cartoons and then every once in a while a bible man would come on and be like all right, well, there's some variety here, you know. I I loved Bible Man when I something yeah, I, I I loved Bible Man when I was a kid, uh, because I was stupid, um, <laughs> and uh, it has this aesthetic where it's like you know Bible Man is shot in like a bunch of church basements and stuff because it is done by like a a bunch of churches, like you know the it's rights go around different places or whatever but it's shot in a bunch of basements and uh, some once in a while they get like a little money and they get to be at like oh we went to like a carnival and and filmed something here or whatever but mostly it's just got this weird aesthetic and all the villains have like this like they look like the borg from star trek they have just like 
piping on them and their makeup is like a certain color it's like oh this one's the blue villain and he's blue and he's like oh i'm sure evil and they're all in the weird thing about bible man lore that no one ever gets into is that it's implied that every one of his villains are actually demons but they never say it they they just make it very very obvious (laughs) like (laughs) well that's a connection to time bandits because they never explicitly call anybody guys exactly yeah never explicitly refer to the dwarves who are our protagonist companions as angels but i feel like they have to Mm. be they have to be like this is this movie's interpretation of you know the the most beautiful and perfect children of god the ones who bear his throne and sit at his right hand are, are those little fucking 100 <laughs> percent. i i think it's really weird that there are six of them like specifically because you know th- if you, well you there a nice little isn't typically in uh some like in some traditions aren't there six angels who bear the throne is that god? true i would have thought it would be seven let me think about this let me well, I don't know if it would be an odd number because you've got three on each side. Oh, yeah, that's true. One of them, like, uh, he, he holds up God's rumpus, you know. he God's got a fatty. I'm so... I'm looking at him right now, right here. I Let me be very, very, very clear. I don't think that this is textual, and I don't think it was intended. No, sure. But I let, let's, let's talk about our cast of characters a little bit, though, here, because it... So the, the dwarves themselves, they're not all super developed, mm. but I feel like you get enough of enough of them. Like you have the leader guy who's the leader know, guy, yes. Wants to have his way. Yeah, he, he wants to have his way and is kinda like conceited or whatever. You have kind of a hot headed second in command, you have a guy who's a nerd, you've got I you know, I said that I don't really remember them, but the I guy who eats everything. The guy, everything. To the guy <laughs> yeah. who eats everything. This this movie rocks. It sucks. Actually, you know what? It adds to the magic that the main character is just this completely nondescript kid who is nothing. Because that's... It It, it feels like the protagonist of a children's right, picture yes. book. Where they're just supposed to be a pure vessel. And there's just no pretension. There's no anything. This is a child who feels like every child does which is that their parents are evil and they hate them and they're ignoring them because you're you're young enough where you still can't do stuff without your parents, but you're just old enough where they've kind of gotten bored of you as a cute kid, so they're just <laughs> kind of doing their own thing. Like, if you're a baby, their entire life revolves around you, so you don't die. But when you're, like, 8 to 12 years old and you can't, you know, go to the, the basketball court and shoot hoops with your friends yet, you just have to be stuck at home while they watch TV. Specific. Like, Man, I wish I were anywhere else. <laughs> I, I wrote down that this boy feels like like the son of Christopher Robin who's being nannied by Mary Poppins and like lives in a chocolate yeah. factory where he's constantly asking, please, sir, can I have some more? Like the most like British schoolboy sort of like, well, can't you understand... I, I I like to call it the the BFG character. If you've seen the BFG, there's this little girl who always says BFG and just like that. And uh, I can picture this kid doing the exact same thing. He just got that vibe of like, I don't have a lot going on in my head right now, but I represent childhood. <laughs> yeah, he's that's really the main sub theme or theme of this sure. week. 
is people who've got a lot of imagination. The kids who, when they were little, the teachers told them they have a lot of imagination. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, wow, I'm sure I've got a bright future because of that. And then uh, we see in Stalker, the titular <laughs> Stalker, is uh, what those kids turn out Man, as. You got, and it turns out they're you got freaks. got some axes to grind this episode, Sean. It's also yeah, me. Yeah, sure. That's also literally me that I it's really cool that this has like the this ha this does that thing that i think animation does a lot you know bfgs you know an example or whatever but i think that animation maybe I i'm i'm pulling at threads here that i'm not sure i i completely understand yet but i think animation owes a lot to british literature and so it ends up with a lot of like the little kid goes off to a place and sort of discovers a world the alice in wonderland you know narnias of the world so you end up with like Coraline and 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 uh spirited away every single one of those miyazaki movies in general where it's like you go off to this place and it's magical and it's full of life and then you leave you come back and you're like well i think i've grown up haven't i you know <laughs> like yeah well i mean because they're all just directly cribbing from disney like every single one of those what no no so, no but where is disney like okay so alice in wonderland like i, I mean every miyazaki movie especially i well sure, not especially but, but every piece of japanese animation is literally just hey let's copy disney and then it grew into its own but what's movie. the kid where name another kid's movie where it's like i'm just a regular person oh wait there's a magical world and i'm a child and like that other than alice in wonderland if you're talking early Disney, I can't even think of one. It's usually... Well, because they were all adapting fairy tales. Sure. And that's... Even if not the direct subject matter of fairy tales, that's the impression that fairy tales are meant to give. It's an escapist fantasy for sure. children. So I, I think that in that way, it all becomes... You can all trace it back to the kind of things that Disney was sure. doing. Sure, sure. But so. you, like you know, I was thinking about that's, that's what yeah, I'm I get that. Uh, yeah, I just think that it's more literature based, just because, like I said, I can't think of a Disney movie other than Alice in Wonderland, which is again British literature, where it's like I'm a kid, I go off to a place where there's like magical things happening, and then I come back and it's like, oh, I'm a little, I'm a little more grown up or whatever, you know. Like I, instead, I think like Spirited Away and other Japanese animation take away from take from Disney in other ways. I don't, I, these, this particular theme, I think, is just British literature and the way that it interacts with children. Yeah, I think you could very much say that Time Bandits is kind of a trip through British literary tradition in a yes, sense. The ogre. I mean, the Napoleonic yeah. Wars, obviously. And also just like how, man, those fucking British, they really have such an axe to grind against Napoleon because he just fucking, they were so jealous. <laughs> He is living rent-free wow. in their head. Because he just fucking rocked their little dicks off oh so my gosh, hard. So much better at them, at being a conqueror. That they're just like, every opportunity they get, they'll put him in there and be like, oh, he was actually really stupid. Like, the, the Napoleon character caricature in this movie is just so, like, obvious. Mm. It's like, oh, he's short. And he's That's actually obsessed thing. with being he's short, also... and, like, he didn't actually have anything yeah. going on in his head except the fact that he was short. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, it's also just kind of very off base. It's like, hey, look at how stupid and incompetent Napoleon <laughs> Right, right. That guy, that guy will never amount to anything. <laughs> he never did anything worthwhile. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I, 100%. Just, the salt was just 
it was I loved to feel it coming off the screen and honestly kind of respected how big yes it was. yeah I, I definitely can see that I think that there's a little bit of an axe to grind with all of history here I think that you know yeah it's, it's far they never they never kind of... address the fact that everyone speaks a different language you know it's one of those like Doctor Who no thing. it's everybody yeah, speaks everyone English. does I guess Everybody speaking. Yeah, sure. Agamemnon. Shelley Uh There's also, uh, so in general, I, I enjoy this as a Gilliam film too. He's always got this like dirty busyness to all his frames where it's like, there's always something going on. Mm. It's not important, but like there's a bunch of stuff going on at the edges of the frame where it's like, oh, I don't know. There's, I, I don't know. We'll have like a little guy in the corner who's like also on this hunt or whatever. I love the little like the demon head guys at the end who are all chasing them down they've got like antlers and stuff like those are cool but like there's all yes a lot of great costumes like very willingly and blatantly artificial but that's that's you know that's the charm in this and yeah like you said some just like legitimately very good and interesting costumes the bits in this movie are what really stand out to me though i think that gilliam in general he gets better at his visual storytelling or maybe i don't know i don't even know where this is within his filmography we don't do any research for this podcast as as we've really well established um but you know it's it's this is not it feels like uh he's not quite at his full powers here and he'll get better there's some cool visual tricks like the wall pulling away and turning into a hallway or uh, the cage suspended over just complete darkness and oblivion is just honestly something that's going to live in my rent free in my head or whatever as like a cool image or the the ship on the head oh yes 100 percent. but once they get into the fantasy realm especially there's just some legitimately very cool right and individual frames but most of the movie up until basically until they get in the fantasy realm good good pull good choice is just like and now we're gonna have a bit with robin hood where robin hood's like i'm gonna take this no thank you thank you thank you you know whatever (laughs) he's like taking their stuff or whatever and then uh yeah and then napoleon you know the short stuff is it's still kind of funny it's still really a good bit you know and i i it's so it's so goofy that it's like I almost just have to give it up. Yeah, one hundred percent. I I I think that this is definitely a good time. I wouldn't put it like high on my ranking or anything like that, but it's just it's just a fun picture, and it's definitely in its own way original. It doesn't feel stupid or anything like that. It doesn't feel like it's talking down. It doesn't feel like it's you know, trying to appeal to the broadest possible audience, but it definitely can, can have its fans in a way. And I, I'm count me among them. It's very individual in its own. I think just how kind of mean spirited Mm -hmm. it is. But that's, you know, that's children's entertainment or, you know, I feel like it kind of used to be because now like everything, including stuff for adults and for children and adults are just adult movies mm. now. It's just like everything is. It, it, this isn't like a oh a political correctness no, thing. Yeah. Like everything, everything is just made to be so broadly appealing yeah. and comforting. And like, I, if you're if you're on the left of center, it's about mental health and therapy and recovering from trauma. And if you're right of center, it's about you know returning to the old this ways. Is, this is how right you sure. are. Yeah, that both that and also just like yes, all the people who you hate are pedophiles. Right. 
and you're right. Okay, all right. This is satire. I have to keep on like putting in the Alpha Dogs episode. The entire description is covered with me just saying this is satire, just to make sure nobody (laughs) nobody gets confused. You're you're fucking with my art. but yeah, like in in the in the um in the vein of pointing out just how like weird this movie is and just how mean mm. is the way that it ends is incredible. Okay. I love it. Let's the let's really break into this because I actually want to pull back to like right before the ending, which is I was gonna yeah. uh, you know they have the the climax of the movie is they bring in all their all these people from like. There's a bunch of cowboys and a bunch of knights and a tank and some kind of space vehicle <laughs> with a laser gun on it. Unclear. It is unclear. It's never brought up. It's never dissected. Love that it's just a thing where it's like, I don't know, something from the future. All right, we'll put a laser, like old fashioned World War II uh, gun on this. Yeah, yeah why sure, not? let's throw it on. I, I think it rules. Um, and, and then they all fight this guy. I, this is the thing. When when that happened, I remembered something that my my girlfriend always says. My girlfriend, of course, I I, I love her, but she is the you know epitome of the modern mindset when it comes to movies in general. Uh, where she, uh, we watched this movie, uh, a good movie. Speaking of Coraline, by uh by by the director of Coraline, uh called Wendell and Wild, and uh that movie ends i i put it on while she was asleep and when she woke up it has that ending where it's like all of our friends from the movie came to help us and they're all gonna help us with this final battle that's not like action but it's like you know and then this person shows up and he does the thing and then this person has like some line where they're like and i'm mad haha <laughs> and then they like all fight the big bad guy or whatever this is what this feels like again yeah. it's a kids movie or whatever but it always re- but but i always remind i'm always reminded of what she said which is she's just like wait you didn't tell me it was this kind of movie and i was like you mean like a kids movie where they're just at the end they don't know what to do and so they just have like a big climax where it's like all of your friends are here and they're gonna like beat up that bad guy and he's gonna go oh Ooh, I'm gonna get you and oh you but you got me and then like one of them does like a thing where like they show their butt and they're like ah you can't catch me or something and then you're like oh wow yeah someone does something goofy and right. childish like we're trying to have we're trying this is serious right now right <laughs> comic relief pisses me off so much I'm not much saying anything like, bad about and, comic relief what I, I just mean is because there, there are stakes it, in this I just scene. mean no sorry this is my it's so it, it is you know it's a kids movie and uh it doesn't feel like it for a second i was like kind of all right well they're gonna bring out the tanks and do the things or whatever and they'll they'll all come together with the power of friendship or whatever against literal like manifestation of evil and somehow overcome it but i love that like when they show up they didn't really saw off the edges of what this is like the first of all the tank straight up is a tank it's pretty it's pretty brutal and yeah you've got a laser gun or whatever on one of them but like the the cowboys straight up say like we're gonna have ourselves a lynching boys or whatever they do say that i I don't want the fact that sean keeps saying i do to or they do they do to distract you from the fact that it actually is true like sean says they do like to joke sometimes no they actually do in this movie and it's 
it's funny and it works because it's like this is not like good and you know they over they get beaten up they don't win at the day or whatever by by beating him up with like uh historic figures or anything like that they eventually win the day because uh you know god shows up and it's like my whole plan was actually this was a test run for evil and uh yeah cool let's uh let's be done We've been stress testing yeah. evil. you know we feel like no, and now it's temporarily down for. And then we get into the part of the ending that you like, where he goes back home, and and what do you like to recap? What exactly? How do you read this ending? <laughs> yeah, so he goes back home with a little a piece of evil in like the. I forget exactly how yeah. it is, but when he goes back to his house, it's in the middle of a, a fire, and it's like, oh, you know, his house is burning down or whatever when he wakes up in his bed and he evacuates and his parents are like oh you know we need to get the 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 fancy refrigerator or whatever their whole thing is just like they hate him they hate his little ass (laughs) and they're just constant i mean they don't even hate him they just don't think anything of him they're just constantly ignoring him and the firefighters the big handsome firefighters come out with a piece a fragment of evil Mm. in like a little box or whatever and then his parents look at it, and then he tells them, hey, please don't touch it. That's evil. And they look at him, and they touch it, and then they explode. And then Sean Connery, as Agamemnon, who previously had promised to adopt <laughs> yeah. and, you know, let, and let, let Didn't him promise. Him did it. He did it. He straight up did it. He yeah. did it. He followed through. <laughs> A man who looks exactly like him winks at our protagonist and you're like oh he's gonna like adopt him in the modern age no he drives the fuck away (laughs) and the kid is just left completely alone alone in the world no parents no nothing his house is burned down and then it just ends and it's over (laughs) why why did it end like that i had a big damn smile on my is is like it's that thing again like i'm thinking roll doll movies right like james and the giant peach or whatever again another uh another one from the director of Coraline. but like it's like these these movies that end with like and then all the bad caregivers were punished but they like blow up (laughs) like they don't there's and usually there's like and then the and then the kindly janitor right you takes know, a, adopts him right. and they Sean Connery should after, like no. take him home or something or whatever but no he's just like left alone he looks as confused as we are as the camera pans yeah. away and you see the earth and then you see the stars and then it says time bandits and that's it <laughs> that's all good you ending get, that's all you need all right i i i don't want to usually do this but i think that we're both into time bandits enough that i think we should we should talk about this terry gilliam's yeah. time bandits is being adapted for an apple tv series peter dinklage it has oh. been offered the lead of course oh, no. because you know he's the he's the one that they would say to do it but i apparently i don't think he took it taika watiti is going to be uh helming the role oh no uh, uh not one of those so uh you're, what do you th- what do you want to see in a in a Terry in a Terry Gilliam list? Apparently, he walked off set after three days because he was like, "I'm this is garbage that Taika Waititi's making or whatever." What would you want to see yeah, from well, a Taika Waititi Time Bandits modern age Time Bandits? I feel like that's kind of doomed from the start. That whole thing. 
So, I mean, if I were to cheat a little mm. bit and say, like, okay, here's the version of that that I would actually sure. want, I think it, god damn, no, there's no way. Here's the thing. All TV is bad now because TV, more than anything, has to be about sure. something. Like, every single thing needs to be about healing from trauma or dealing with yeah. the moment. Yeah. And it's like, listen, even if I completely agree, like, politically with everything, no. I'm, not, I'm not doing a thing of like, oh, don't get politics in my art. No, no. Like, yeah, you know, it's true that all art is political. Uh -huh. But when it's just like... It's just the same two things over and over. To take, to take Donald Trump right. to task. Yeah. We're going to travel back in time. And we're gonna confront Hitler, and Hitler says that some that some people were very fine oh. people, and he has small oh hands. Oh my gosh! And it's like, all right, but this, that could I be. Mean, this is just completely. <laughs> <tangential>. <laughs> right. I mean, Taika not even remotely. I mean, Taika did make a stinking Jojo Rabbit, so it could definitely go that way, in a way. Yeah. We're... Yeah. I mean, listen. I, I get just, what you're saying. I I just don't believe any kind of. Especially like Apple TV. Like I guess I have some good. Did they produce the Velvet Underground? Yes. One, or is that just the only way that we can? Yeah. That, okay. So they have one. It is weird seeing the Criterion logo that, and then the Velvet on, or the, and then the Apple TV logo or whatever. But yeah, it, they did. Yeah. I mean, that's one piece of goodwill to counteract all the Ted Lassos. You the don't like Ted Lasso? I haven't seen it. It's just not. My yeah. Thing. Fair enough. I uh, I basically agree. I'm not a big fan of modern TV. Uh, Stranger Things is was my one of my favorite shows because I mean it's still one of my favorite shows, but it was one of my favorite shows that was on right now because it was not really concerned too much with that. Like there was representation, and anyone who's like, "Oh my gosh, representation so forced or whatever," there's representation. In it. That's no, not what yeah, I'm. That's, I'm not ranting. Dumb, that's the dumb right, thing. To that's complain. the dumb. I part want to plant yeah. my flag very firmly that that's not right exactly movie. we're not we're not saying that no there's representation in it and that's good that's fine and that's not what we're talking about but then the fourth season of the show is like what if it was about trauma what if it was about healing from from the bad thing that happened off screen that we're gonna like show flashbacks of and i was like that that sucks it it gets really it turns into every other you know horror esque show or movie that's on right now and i i just the a24 yeah, they they did i used that quote and everyone hated me for it <laughs> because everyone loves the the new season or whatever but you're right that's exactly it uh yeah i, I don't think i've seen anybody whose intelligence i respect say a word of praise for the last stranger things uh i like stranger things so you know Okay. <laughs> it's funny because you don't respect the me. First two were we okay. get it. Or the first one. No, I said the last season. Oh, the last season. season. Oh, fair enough. Okay, yeah. That's uh probably true, except that that would probably be disrespecting literally every person I know outside of you, so <laughs> Well It is what it is. Alright, so uh oh yeah, and then uh so I just think uh to in order to get my respect for this time bandit show, don't do it. Yeah. I you know what? If if it has to be done uh, practical sets. Do the thing that you're that was done in this movie. Do like crazy, like old school stuff. They're not going to do it, so I'm just going to plant my flag there. If you do that, I will watch an episode. But they're not going to do that. So, what I will, I will a thousand percent agree. Love the practical mm -hmm. sets here. Love them. Love how goofy and not shoddy, but just yeah, you know, artificial. That's that's what I like about it. 
But also, if you do include the part where Satan says, um, where he says, stand by for mind control, <laughs> which is probably just one of the most perfect <laughs> phrases I've ever heard. If you include that in its pure crystalline, unaltered form. <laughs> where he's holding then, out his arms like Frankenstein and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, maybe I'll allow you a chance to go to mm. Like, after a thousand or whatever years in purgatory. But otherwise, hell. And with that, I think we're going to move on to Seijun Suzuki's Branded to Kill. Uh, we've already covered Tokyo Drifter, which is, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, Branded to Kill is the first of Seijun Suzuki's movies in the collection. And uh, Sean, would you like to read us the description from the Criterion collection? I would like nothing more in the fucking world. When Japanese New Wave bad boy Seijun Suzuki delivered this brutal, hilarious, and visually inspired masterpiece of the executives at his studio, he was promptly fired. Branded to kill, Kodoshi no Rakuen, tells the ecstatically bent story of a Yakuza assassin with a fetish for steamed, sniffing, shit, with a fetish for sniffing steamed rice, the chipmunk cheek superstar Joe Shishido, come on, who botches a job and ends up a target himself. This is Suzuki at his most extreme, the flabbergasting pinnacle of the 60s pop art aesthetic. You can't do Joe Shishido like that. Like, we all know... <laughs> We all know it's the first thing we all thought when we saw him, but you can't have it be the first thing that a new viewer will learn about him. They can't go in thinking that. They have to, like the rest of us, get that impression when they watch the movie. <laughs> they yeah, have to they have, have to. that moment where they're like, oh, he looked like a chipmunk. He looked that, like a chipmunk. This MF cheek's chubby as hell. They need to have that moment. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, so I'm gonna come out real, I'm gonna come out swinging with this movie. Last time, Tokyo Drifter, I came out swinging with, like, this is my take, it's very Quentin Tarantino-ish, he clearly, he, you know, Tarantino, like, copped from this real hard. One of my worst takes, gonna be real here. Uh, I love Tokyo oh, Drifter, yeah. though. My my big take for Brandon to Kill is, I have very little to say about it. I think it is pretty fun sometimes, uh, I like it probably the least out of yeah all, the least out of all the movies we covered this week and i wait i'm a little disheartened because i was hoping seijin suzuki was going to be like one of my guys who i get to deep dive in there's a uh, on the criterion channel right now there's a collection uh of, of his movies that i was gonna deep dive through and maybe i still will but uh this is not this wasn't it for me chief it, it's it's fine i liked it quite a bit more than Mm. but I don't know how different our experiences were. I think this is one of those that if you're attuned to it, you, it, it's a thin line. It's a precarious balance. If even for a moment, the thought crosses your mind, like, I think I could be getting tired of this, then you're immediately going to be like, oh, fuck this. But for me, it was, it was really fun and cool and innovative. The whole, I mean, innovative, not in a way like I've never seen anything like this before. Because, yeah, at least we've seen Tokyo Drifter. Even then, though, it's, like, different, very mm. stylistically. Like, right. I mean, just starting from the fact that Tokyo Drifter was in color. and the In color bright, very, very vibrant color. Yeah, technical Yeah, that was a huge, type, important part of it. Type. And then Branded to Kill came out a few years later. We just mm. decided, no, this one's in black and white. And uh, I think it works because this felt, I mean, this felt like farce. Like, kind of the Japanese version of Monty Python. Like, in a mm. sense that it feels like a, a series of sketch comedy characters that were adapted into a movie. 
Like if there was a Saturday night. If you mean that they're thin, yes. If you mean that they're funny, no. (laughs) No, they are funny. So you're, you know, take yourself on that. But it's like if all the Saturday Night Live characters, it's not like a night at the Roxbury or anything. It's like if all of them had an Avengers style confluence where they all came together. That's what this feels like. Where it's like, oh, it's the rice sniffing assassin. Oh, (laughs) it's the weird assassin. Oh, it's the the weird lady. Oh, it's the other weird. Lady. <laughs> you're you're really you're really like oh, there was the one specific that I'm gonna latch onto, and then I can't remember the rest of the specifics. No, but well, yeah, that's, that's true. It's that's true. part of why it's so fun. Is like they're just indescribable, not indescribably exactly, but just kind of like why are they like this? Like, what is the decision that made it so that he sniffed rice as his thing? And I yep. looked it up and. What do you think the reason was? Um, they wanted to, they thought it would be cool. No, it was that he wanted to make the hero, Seijin Suzuki wanted to make the hero quintessentially Japanese. Oh my gosh. And, okay. And, he's, and his reasoning was like, well, if he was Italian, he would want to sniff it. Like, Dude, you are, you are so motherfucking right about that. Seijun Suzuki and like Canadian Seijun Suzuki would be like, you know, he's got he's got to snip bacon, eh? (laughs) He's got to like be drinking maple syrup the whole time. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing you see. Like that, you're. It's funny. It is funny. It's funny if you think about it. That's made me laugh more than almost anything we've ever said on this podcast. Seijun Suzuki is a funny fucking guy. He, he is. I didn't find this movie funny at all because it, it wants to kill itself constantly. All the characters are think about is like dying and trying to prevent death or trying to instigate hilarious. death. It's not fun. And I, I don't mean it in like a like, well, it's morbid. You know, we shouldn't think about those things. I mean, Beetlejuice is funny. Like, I mean it in that like it doesn't it's not a comedy by any stretch. Everyone takes themselves deathly seriously and not to an over-exaggerated extent. They're just really thin characters that are really concerned about like survival. It almost, the closest thing I would think about when, you know, obviously this is very much a gangster movie, but outside of Tokyo Drifter, the movie that I would most uh, compare this to is probably like a Hitchcock movie where it's like, there's the suspense and there's like a gimmick going on. It reminded me of High and Low, right? Where he's like on the phone and there's this other other person who who's constantly watching him the whole time. It, it's got that kind of feel of like there's just darkness around these people. And uh, it didn't make for a very funny I, environment. I think that's an insane characterization of this movie. Because every part of it is farcical. Like, it's ridiculous. The, because the core premise is this guy is one of the greatest assassins of all time. No sure. matter what you put in front of him, no matter who you know tries to fuck with him, he will always come out on top because he's just that good. And then you meet him, and he's like this weird rice sniffing dipshit who's just like constantly afraid for his life and constantly like horny and fixated over this random woman with no redeeming qualities. Right. He's just willing to ruin his life for her. And by the end, I mean the entire, not the entire third act, but the last confrontation between him and the 
the ultimate number one assassin is, I mean, just a comedy sketch straight up, like mm-hmm. no equivocation. Sure. No okay. Yeah, I get like, what you're. Yeah. And yeah, there's like, like there they is, won't take the gun. They got to leave the gun on the table. They have to pee together. They to yeah, each other. All that he has stuff. All these weird little. He's the greatest assassin of all time who refuses to kill his target yeah. because that's not how he, he does things. It, like when he when he gets the gun and he take when when the the main character gets back to his home because he's thinks he's finally escaped and he picks up the the uh, the number 1's gun and it's got a note inside that says this is how number 1 does things. I did think of like the the first person that came to mind was like the rock or something where it's like do you smell yeah. i'm cooking like a wrestler type you know archetype who's like i did the thing and it was like really cool and you're like yeah but rest uh i'm gonna break some real like fantasies here but wrestling's fake <laughs> you know like it feels it's got that weird humor uh for for an outsider where you're like yeah but this is all silly though and I, I mean, and it's I, not I that wrestling is fake. Is the problem is that wrestling fucking sucks and is like really lame. <laughs> Sean, like is that, there, am I ever going to mention anything, whether I have a good opinion of it or not? And you're not going to be like, you know what though, it sucks. Burr, burr, well, burr, Monday, Monday, Monday. We'll start talking more about like Neon Genesis Evangelion, and you'll get a lot <laughs> more positive responses. From Fair it. enough. There's like two or three things that humans have ever made that are good, and mm. you're not hitting. I, uh, I, well, I also want to acknowledge the, uh, very unique Japanese thing that if you're paying enough attention to Japanese media, you'll immediately get, which is how interlinked hierarchies they are. Mm, Every single thing. As someone who does not consume nearly as much, uh, Japanese media as you, I definitely see that. I, I think of, uh, My Hero Academia, cause that's the one anime I watch, and obviously they're all about, like, who's number one hero? Who's number two hero? And all that, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I think there's a very funny thing about the idea that, hey, um, no matter how, like, exotic or despicable or low down or, or out there somebody is like, oh, a professional assassin, like kind of someone who's in the dark underbelly of everything. You still have a corporate ladder and there's <laughs> sure. still guys above and below you. And right. you have to you have to grind to get a little bit better and everybody's gonna be disappointed in you if you don't, you know, do this, this, and this. Um mm. it's it's very it's one of the things that's kind of subtly funny about this. It's not, you know, it's it's what people it's not ha ha funny. Exactly, but it's okay. it's cute. Um, a lot of little things about about this one that uh, that stand out, and I mean, we probably shouldn't underestimate just if someone isn't familiar with Seiji Suzuki, like it's incredibly stylized to the point of almost incomprehensibility in places. But I think this has even more kind of fun and energy and momentum to it than Tokyo Drifter. Not okay. necessarily that that's what makes it better interesting I'm not sure if i like it better but tokyo drifter takes its time it drifts it meanders it does yeah but this one is kind of back-to-back weird little scenes um that yeah again feel like back-to-back kind of sketches with, with these characters that uh i found really entertaining i found it lovely me yeah i i get that i think uh 
the middle act i think is really what drags on me the most i hate this like woman who shows up who's like you know what i'm gonna just wander into the story you know what i hate living and uh i I have this like i expected your wife to be a weirdo or whatever and she's not a weirdo she's like kind of basic like you know whatever like her whole vibe just doesn't meld well with me and generally i think that she serves no plot function except to be again like cool like kind of funny and it doesn't because i don't find her cool or kind of funny i kind of just i'm not interested and i don't understand the motivation that she has for most of the movie especially when they get into like the bit of like oh it's actually this guy is related to this guy and that's why this guy wants to kill this guy like i'm like just give me this it's it i'm not saying like oh movies can't be complicated that would be really really stupid of me to say uh even as a joke but i'm i am saying that uh this movie has a lot of intricacy that it really doesn't care about. And I, I, you know, it feels like there's a good movie under like a hundred tons of aesthetics that really, you know, weigh it down. But, you know, I could, maybe I'll turn around on it. Uh, what, what do you see here? What is it that, that makes this like uh, a worthy entry as far as something that has thematic depth or, or any interest, you know, in richness? I don't think it's so much about thematic that I think that there's stuff that you can get from there. And Suzuki would probably balk at that, like, no, this isn't what this movie is about. It's supposed right. to be fun and stylized, and it's, it's supposed he to called, be hot. Yeah. In in the one episode that I ever did research for, which is the Tokyo Drifter episode, I I, re- I uh, watched an interview with him where he called himself a, a pop song filmmaker, and I've never gotten that out of my head because I was thinking like, well, who else are the pop song? filmmakers what are the pop song movies you know and i think that you know he makes cool movies probably whoever directed pop star never stop never stop for sure i wish i could pull him off off the off the top of my head uh but i cannot do that the guy who directed the one direction movie the guy who directed (laughs) the justin bieber movie the guy who directed the Katy perry movie pretty sure Katy perry directed her own movie let's be real that's probably true happened to katie <laughs> what happened to hey what happened to her you 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 wait i actually have a huge Katy perry take we cannot get into this we don't have time we're an hour no, in we are getting into it right now we need to hear it okay Katy perry stinking doesn't uh Katy perry could not adapt to the modern to the modern pop song she made really cool pop songs that really captured a moment she had the teenage teenage dream she had the confection stuff the confection whatever i can't even remember what it was called she had all that stuff that was really cool in the early 2010s she you know really was a firework she got to roar and all that and then after dark horse she really doesn't feel like she found a new thing because she stopped being she became a pop star of one moment because she just makes songs about how uh it's really cool to like go out and party and uh be awesome and be special and how special things are and it doesn't feel like she has much else uh in her music and so after that it doesn't feel like any of her songs came out uh, like really took off or whatever this is how we do is the last song of hers that i have ever really like listened to but none of them really took off because they're a song about like 
this is the night that tonight is the night where we got to do everything tonight because all we have is tonight you know and it's all like it's this temporary kind of pop song that she makes you know and so it's very of the moment i'm not saying that she's like an impersonal artist or even that her songs are bad i really like them uh but because of that she was stuck in the early 2010s and she can't really escape the shadow of more developed artists who are able to uh not only develop and create different personas that aren't that are that are you know changing with the times and everything but also better songwriters better people who have more uh art stronger artistic sensibility so that's my Katy perry take it's weird that we have to throw that in the middle of this episode. I also liked Katy Perry because I was a boy who grew up in the 2010s. So of course I liked Katy Perry, but uh, I've, I've definitely thought that through and listened to some of her stuff and just been like, Oh, I, I got it. I, I think I, I think I get this. It's a Britney thing. It's a, well, her songs were all about like this moment. And so when the moment passed, there wasn't really anything left. That's good. I like that. I don't know if I have much more to add, but uh, thank you for sharing. You're welcome. <laughs> so, as far as branded to kill, though, yeah, I, I mean, there's not. It's a vibes movie in a sense, but not in the sense that nothing happens. A lot of things happen, but they're just sort of scattershot and individually meaningless. But they cobble together. They they form a pretty interesting trajectory, like the. I mean, the part with, like, the, the butterflies going across the screen. It's, like, kind of half dream sequence, half, like, music video sequence just dropped in the middle there. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of little things like that that I think add up to make this really fun. You know, bolstered along by performances that are intentionally one note for characters that are intentionally one note. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. it's... Not everybody's going to find it funny. Not everybody's going to find it entertaining. I get that. I was a little bit... I'm actually not that surprised that you like Tokyo Drifter, but not this. Because no. they do yeah, feel that's, very that's my. They're my vibes. I honestly think the difference between you and I could almost be described as the difference between Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill, which is like... I, I like both of them. So yeah, you like both of them. No, you like both me and you, whereas I don't like you. No, I'm kidding. No, respect. No, that's true. That's true. That's our dynamic. Right, right. No, but actually, like, uh, I don't know. Branded to Kill is is just a... Uh, it feels like it's, like, taking itself a little extra seriously. I know you're saying it's, like, a joke, but it's, like, it's not fun. I don't understand how you could see this as very fun. I get I when you're seeing, like, you jokes. Can. There's, like okay so he wandered i don't know I, I i just can't see it as fun i don't know how, how else to describe it i if this is a this is a movie that i the, the most fun i had was just the stupid thing that i like to do which is i'm like oh my gosh look that thing is like that thing where he does the same kill as ghost dog up the sink or whatever right and i could not help but be like ah it's cool it's because the thing i know but really i don't know i this was actually this was just the toughest watch this week when i expected it to be a home run and maybe that like colored my my impression of it i i liked it i didn't love it 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 was it's like a great dictator for me where i was like yeah cool but you know there's there could be more here and and there's not I'm basically closing the book. I think I think I've covered everything you want. I want to say. You got anything else? No, I think I'm ready to move on. 
All right, we're going to go into my pick for this week, which is we're we're getting into our more of our time uh, theming right now, which is called uh, Journey. Oh, what's that? What's that sound? It's the uh, it's the Tardo. The Tardo is warming up. The tar- the Tardis. He's, he's trying. Doctor to... Him's coming. You can't. It's Doctor Him. Sean, you can't say Tardo. <laughs> Why not? What's wrong? <laughs> What's the next movie? It's called Journey to the Beginning of Time. A beguiling mix of natural history and science fiction, this early feature by Carol Zeman, Car- Zeman follows four schoolboys on an awe-inspiring expedition back through time, where they behold landscapes and creatures that have long since vanished from the Earth. Hewing closely to the scientific knowledge of its era, Journey to the Beginning of Time brings its prehistoric beasts alive through a number of innovative techniques, including stop-motion, puppetry, and life-size of models, creating an atmosphere of pure wonderment. This thing is cool. This thing is fun. You, you want to talk about fun movies? This movie, it, it's pretty fun. Like, I don't think, like, honestly, I'm, I'm going to be real here. I think this movie is barely any better than Branded to Kill. Maybe, maybe a little better than Branded to Kill, but come on, there's like dinosaurs and special effects and the kids are running around. It's like fun. It feels like playing with your friends in the woods, but like the woods are like the suburbs, like kind of circle of trees that's been set aside to be like the the woods or whatever, where like you'll find like a skunk living there or whatever. And your mother would be like, well, you shouldn't play in the quote, the woods or whatever. Yeah, it, it rules. It's great. It's very much about, like, I mean, kind of the core premise of it is that it's supposed to be kind of educational, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't know, just for that reason, how stimulating a child would find it, because they can very easily sense when you're trying to help have them learn something, and I can tell you, as someone who worked to try and teach kids shit, there's nothing <laughs> that they hate more than that. Like knowing that they're being taught, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, uh, I I still think that it's it's like very comforting. It's very comfortable because the stakes are there are stakes, but they're kind of low. And there's you know a few little different trials and challenges, but ultimately it's about hanging out with your friends and just seeing some just seeing some cool shit. Sure. And, uh, it's I mean we I have to acknowledge think... like how delightful. That the whole thing is just because Karel Zeman, which is how I think you decide how to pronounce it, he's he's like I did not know he was this fucking cool because the animation in this, like, I mean you can't really say it holds up exactly because standards have just shifted so much, but I think it still looks very good because it's mm-hmm. nice and stylized, it's very cute, and there's a lot of like the diversity of techniques that are being used and everything and just the attention paid to the scientific knowledge of that time, which is dated by now, because dinosaurs have feathers now. Hmm. But you know, it's just, it's it's such a delight. It's a I, quiet little movie. I like to say that sometimes that, like, uh, as a kid, I would have been the weird kid who actually liked this movie. Because as a kid, I was like a boy plucked out of like the late 1800s where like, if you gave me a hoop and a stick, I'd be like set and you'd blow my mind with like a basketball and a backboard or whatever. Like that, that was like too much for you. <laughs> like you'd be like, no, like that would be like my ideal thing. I like loved reading like uh treasure Island and the great brain. And like, you know, these older 
books about like there's some kid and he goes off on a swiss family robinson even robinson caruso but like these old school things where it's like they you kind of feel like you're learning a little something because they're like classics and you'll learn a little bit about like this is what happened in pirate times or whatever but it's mostly like an adventure and uh i don't know i would have liked this as a kid but i was a little weirdo child i think that what I think the appeal of it to to modern audiences is really going to boil down to sort of the avatar thing where it's like it's very I liked that it starts by saying, OK, so we all went and we went to go see dinosaurs. Boom. And like they are like already on the expedition. And I, I like that because it's basically just saying, here's the stakes. We want to get to the end of history, the beginning of time to see the, you know, the trilobites or whatever. Uh, so we're going to go into this cave because we heard like in Jules Verne novels, right? They they go into Journey to the Center of the Earth. They find dinosaurs there. So we went into this cave and we just assume that it's going to happen. And uh, it turns out it's true. And yeah, they're very... Like, we'll go into our magic cave, which right. we all know to be our special magic cave. And we're going <laughs> to go back in time and it's not a big deal. It's a lot of fun. It's like magic treehouse books or whatever. It's these like the kids who have like an overactive imagination doing the thing. And it's like, is it real? Is it going to interact with like parents or anything? No, of course not. But it's going to for us, it's our little little world or whatever. And I, I appreciated this vibe of like uh, the joke that everyone says now it, uh, where where people are you know you're on the playground one day and your parents don't know that you and your friends have been building to this season finale for like weeks now and now the plot lines have all converged so that you have to you know hit each other with sticks now or whatever it rules i that kind of feeling is what this movie gives me where it's like you know no parent knows right now that their their kids are out doing you know pretending that they're fighting woolly mammoths or anything like that but they're but they but they are and to them it's real and to us as the viewer because of because we're here it is real as well but i i i guess i kind of accidentally stumbled on a reason why i like this movie when i was talking about it it's Mm -hmm. how quiet it is yeah because i and to to that point you remember when they go into the cave and they find the caveman and they say like oh wow He's not like a weird, crazy monster. He was just like us, which is kind of like a sweet... All of these kids are like angels. They're just perfectly kind of curious and mm-hmm. contemplative and thoughtful. Sure. Which is, it's kind of like a nice feeling when you're watching a movie like this, which is just about kind of kicking back and watching something kind of sweet and earnest. But they never they never meet the caveman. No, and it's, no. It's like, it's this very strange sense of, they're not, they're going through history, but it very much feels like, like walking through a ghost town. Right. Like everything is dead here. There's an acknowledgement that their time has passed. The movie would not, in my opinion, the movie would not get in the Criterion Collection if they met a, if they met a caveman. You know, like it, yeah, it, it needs to keep like, that surreal quality of they're in distance. somewhere that no one else has been before. And if they met a caveman, it would be you know a modern person in like some yeah. kind of garb would be like, would be like hey, what's up what's up kids i'm og the caveman right let's exactly. ride on my pterodactyl and we'll go to the volcano or and they would have been or like, be like a scary monster well og is like our friend you know and there'd be a whole thing yeah I, I i like it this way i like the way they keep it yeah it's 
it's got the sort of distance from its subjects. And there's a little bit of a minor conflict with because this whole trip is for the sake of Georgie, who's kind of the youngest of them. Mm-hmm. And he, he wants to see the trilobites. Yeah, and people, and they're like, oh, you're just a fucked up, stupid little kid, whatever. And oh no, we lost the logbook. You know, Georgie has to, like, <laughs> throw a stick at a funny lizard. Yeah, he, which is he an pulls, incredible scene. <laughs> then he pulls I it love out of the his funny shirt. Little lizard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a very sweet movie that makes me want to. Makes you want to dive deep into this guy because I know he's done. I mean, obviously he's got puppetry and three D animation and stop motion stuff here, but he's yeah. got two D stuff. I saw some snippets of it that are that, and look genuinely really interesting. Like he, Carol Zeman seems like the kind of person who just quietly dedicated his life and mastered his craft, and you just don't really hear about a lot. Obviously, he gets a little bit of old because he's. He's into collection, but I still want to give him his give him his flowers. Maybe take a, a closer eye at uh, at his ego. I agree. Maybe maybe after Fitz Friday, you know, you you've got this Fitz Fridays thing going, where you're watching a bunch of these Fritz Fitz Fitz Fritz Lang movies. Why do I keep on saying that? I, um, I was gonna let you go for as long <laughs> as you realize it. Yep. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, you got, so maybe your next director after that should be Zeman. There's a lot of Fritz to still go through. So, I know, you've got like... I mean, I, I know... He, I don't know, he have a, like a 50-movie filmography or something like that? He did a lot, and there's a lot of them that I'm probably going to skip. I mm-hmm. mean, I've watched a few, a handful more of his, his films now, and I can comfortably say that he was a different motherfucker every time he picked up a camera, because... Some of his, like Metropolis, one of my favorites of all time is The Bullet. M, right up there as well. Mm. And then he'll just, like, direct shit that's like, okay, there's kind of mastery on display here, but Spies is three hours, and <laughs> I and there were, like, two things about it that I liked. Sure. Listen, it's just... He's inconsistent, he's, and that somehow makes you like him. <laughs> not even inconsistent, it's just, like, all of his movies are done in such a different way. Mm. Like, M doesn't read at all like Metropolis. Like Metropolis and the the Nibelungans are like pretty similar, but I mean we're, we're going off off topic here. No, that's cool. No, like, let's talk about let's talk about Fitzlang. <laughs> that's that's yep. who he is to us. Fitzlang. But just I mean that's why that's why he's the master because it just seems like every single time he was comfortable doing something completely different. Some days he was Fritzling, sometimes he was Fitzling. Yeah, and that was really the main thing, is like he would swap which name he chose. <laughs> it was like, so I, I like the, his films under Fitzlang, but his Fritzlang ones are, are the ones that really pop mm, off. It's that thing, it's that joke in Scott Pilgrim. You know, he, their first album isn't as good as their first album. <laughs> I thought you were going to do like the Scott and Mega Scott. And they're just like the same oh, guy. Oh, duh. Yeah, okay, sure. Or <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, I'm like that. Oh, he's a real chill, chill dude. It's Fritz Lang and Fitz Lang meeting each other. If we had a social media manager, I'd be telling them to make that meme right now. But we don't. It's just me. So uh, I'm not going to do it because I'm lazy. He just, he just shits which eye. <laughs> that is Both of them are completely fine. He's just faking. <laughs> No, but the weird oh, thing you, is, Fritz, if you lift up, if you lift up the eye patch, there's actually a scarred eye under there. But if, but he can switch between them, which one is the messed up one and which one is the regular one. 
the world is truly a mysterious place. Yeah, so Journey to the Beginning of Time is a movie about that. And uh, the special effects are absolutely marvelous. They're not like, I'm not sitting here telling you, like, you should watch it because it looks realistic or anything. Uh, but that, that's not the point. It's the stylistic endeavor, and I think it rules. It's the cartoons. stop motion is, yeah, I mean... Yeah, there, there's stop motion and puppetry at, at work here that I far surpasses anything that I have seen before. I really enjoyed it, and I think uh, everyone should check it out. Pretty, pretty light on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's it, it's a simple kind of movie. I think it's the one that you're not you're meant to go away with it without a lot of things to necessarily say about it. It's an experience. I have one last thing I do want to say about it. Is do you think that this Movies like this, do you think they should be in the collection just for, I don't know, preserving time? Like what we're, we've we're taught, we've kind of abandoned a little bit talking about like whether this movie should be in the collection or not. Right. Journey to the Beginning of Time is not a movie that's like amazing. I mean, it's amazing I as something a like Marvel. Sorry, it, I, I don't mean to cut you off here, but sure. I feel very strongly that something like this kind of needs to be there. Sure. Because it's it's a very unique type of film. Like it's mm. semi educational, semi not documentary, but like uh, meant to be sort of informational in it. It's, it's a like, biopic, but about dinosaurs. It is, <laughs> yeah. Animals. It's and it's very light and it's very low stakes, and it's that confluence of things, and also just obviously the stop motion aspect of it, right unique sort of special effects on display like that's i think that this movie needs to be in the collection more so than a lot of movies that i consider to be better like if Mm. someone had if someone gave me a choice of saying like hey should this go in or should m go in i'll be like well m is better but there are more movies that are great in the way that m is great or closer to that than i think there exist movies that are like this I, so, I I agree with the principle that you're saying. I would still put M in because M I think is really in, impactful and influential. But I I definitely get where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's got its own. It, this thing has its own merits. You know, I I, I completely really, unique merits. One hundred percent. And it really break broke broke up a pretty heavy week, which brings us to maybe the heaviest movie we've covered. Depending, yeah, depending on your reading. I also just want to briefly say to bridge the gap here mm-hmm. how similar, well, the, yeah. the weird similarities oh. of Journey to the Beginning of Time and Soccer. Yes, 100%. I... It's about some guys going on an adventure in a place that is weird. Why don't you read the the criterion summary? Because uh, I think that Why everyone will be I? able, yeah, they'll be able to listen I? to that, and they'll be like, "Oh yes, definitely seems like Journey to the Beginning of Time." Andrei Tarkovsky's final Soviet teacher is a metaphysical journey through an enigmatic post-apocalyptic landscape and a rarefied cinematic experience like no other. That whole paragraph felt like an MFG. A hired guide, the stalker, leads a writer and professor into the heart of the zone, the restricted site of a long ago disaster where the three men eventually zero in on the room, a place rumored to fulfill one's most deeply held desires. Adapting a science fiction novel by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, Tarkovsky created an immersive world with a wealth of material detail and a sense of organic atmosphere, a religious allegory, a reflection of contemporaneous political anxieties, a meditation on film itself, 
stalker envelops the viewer by opening up a multitude of possible meanings. That's a pretty lame way to end it. To be like, what makes this movie good is that there are a lot of you can you can interpret it any damn way you want, which you can mm. say about any movie. But I mean, I get what they're going for. It's there's a lot of very viable readings I think here, and I think just based on our, our pre-recording discussion a little bit, both of our readings get kind of acknowledged here. So I think there's some of the more sure, ones. yeah. So do you do we want to start off with? talking about the main takeaways that we had and then going into details or, or other way around. What do you I think, think? I think I, I want to start. I kind of want to start with the details a little bit. What I want to, I want to say about this movie. I want to give people the impression of what it's like to watch this movie a little bit, because I think that that is if, if so we're just going to sit in silence for four minutes. <laughs> Sean, that was a three point joke. <laughs> Um, it is, it's a movie, uh, yeah, so this movie is two hours and 40 minutes long. It's about these three guys going into, quote, the zone, uh, in this, like, post-apocalyptic thing or whatever, and when they leave, when they're outside the zone, everything is in this, like, goldish kind of hue, and when they go into the zone, for the most part, it's in, it's in color, it's in perfectly normal, a little vibrant, but kind of gray, you know, bluish gray color. Um, and the, this movie is languorous and long and the entire time people talk about like the zone as if it's this like living, breathing being that's scary and, and like couldn't, can ruin you. And as much as I, as much as that is true, I, I want to put forward something that if you want to go into this movie with you know completely free skip to the next segment skip to our outros and our ranking and everything because we're going to get really deep into this but and stalker, i encourage that because we get really racist like five to ten minutes in like you start comparing <laughs> all the skull shapes of every slavic race and you do not oh sean no but i i think well, that they're white it's fine stalker gets into this thing where you, you got this character who is the stalker and who's like warning them like man this place is gonna like kill you you know or or it's gonna like drive you mad or you're gonna get lost or whatever and for the most part nothing happens there's no dangers within the zone really there's well, not there's no like I mean, it, when he they're talking about the zone, I'm thinking even if it's like psychological, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, there's going to be some kind of trees that are going to, you know, shoot, you know, plants out, spores out that are going to make them fall asleep, or there's going to yeah, be. It's not really that kind of movie. No, it's not. And when he talks up the danger, you expect physical danger. When they're scared of like going down the 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 pipe, you expect that the pipe is going to be bad. And instead, all it is is like kind of sad, kind of you know. It's a little. It sucks a little bit, and um, it does. It sucks a little. <laughs> like that's really what the zone is. Like the zone. This the zone is a metaphor for whatever you want it to be. It's God. It's the devil. It's Eden. It's hell. Whatever it is, you know. You got. There's a thousand reasons to talk about the zone, and we'll get into them and talk about our readings and everything. But literally, I I wanted to just stress this. The zone is like a 
a, a bit of like grass and and you know messed up piping and buildings that have been ruined that they like walk through and are really scared of for two hours and 40 minutes and uh yeah that that's about it and then they go home <laughs> yeah but i mean we're, we're obviously kind of making light of it a little bit here because sure i mean it's my favorite type of thing where it's a really it's so easy to make fun of but it's also perfect i mean sure. I know, but it's like but every single thing is like why is this guy scrunching up his face and crying so much? Why does nothing happen in this movie? Why is everything so long? But it's also like just transfixingly beautiful. Mm. But that is to say that it's true that nothing physically happens, but if I had one word to describe this movie in a few different senses, it would be heavy. Like mm. Every single frame of it seems to just be choking you. Because, I mean, every frame, especially in the zone, even even outside of it, where it's like this industrial landscape where everybody's very confined and pressed right. in, but the zone just feels like everything is covered by this dense fog. There's so many things just laying about, just animals and grass and just everything is choked with foliage and all this detritus and decay. It, it reminds me a, a little bit they're extremely different movies, but Tetsuo the Iron Man, my favorite movie. Right. As something that they have in common here is just the mapping the human psychological landscape onto their environment and using sure. junk and trash and specifically metal refuse as, mm -hmm. as kind of a window into that. It's, it's this very, it, it it's just so fucking cool. Like any kind of these rusted hulks of tanks and like that. And there's like so many mysteries about, okay, why exactly are these things strewn about in this way? Right. You know, like because the zone, it's, it's something that we're told is sealed off to everybody and that nobody goes in. And there was in the, in the opening call, there's like, well, the military went in, we tried to conquer it whenever, but nothing came back. And there's kind of this hanging question of, is the zone, the, like, is all this stuff the result of that? Like, are these the human leavings and incursions here, or is it, are these kind of naturally forming pieces of junk and detritus? Because as the stalker observes, humans and their psychology shape the zone and they create it. And it shapes them in turn. It's it's kind of like, in a sense, the collective unconscious. Because, I mean, it, the movie's about everything of humanity. Like, love, loss, death, oblivion, religion. Just everything is contained here. And I think everything is implied to be contained within the zone. Where it's kind of a dark tower-style nexus of all realities. Nexus of all thought. Right. And I, I think that that's clear enough within the movie that we can go from there and start talking about how, if that is true, then what does the character and makeup of the zone suggest about humanity and human psychology? I wonder about that. So one, one of the things that I found uh, when, when looking into this movie, a lot of people were making Chernobyl, you know, uh, kind of 
uh, comparisons. I, I'm not going to speak to that very much because I know very little about that, and that's just not my my area of expertise. But when I thought about the zone, what I thought about so much is not even I didn't even think about the zone that much. I think what I really thought about is this room that they want to get to, which apparently will grant them their deepest desire. You know, and uh, they they say that if they go in, they'll be able to grant this deepest, darkest you know whatever they want the most or whatever and that's why they wander into this place of supposed but not really mortal danger is is to find this thing and uh the spoilers at the end of the movie they decide no everyone decides that they're not going in for different reasons and i i loved it as this idea of they somehow think they're, they're these guys that think that they are above needing to have faith that there's this like the the way i read this movie is like this whole exercise was an exercise in faith they're constantly being told like this is a scary place there's something crazy happening here the 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 writer starts the movie by saying like there are no flying saucer saucers there's no telepathy or i think he literally said does he say telepathy i think it's telepathy i don't think he says telekinesis that would sure, be yeah. pretty on the nose or whatever but he's like there's no magic none of that exists we live in a pretty uh, a world governed by rules and you know sucks to suck right and then when they are uh suddenly in countering this room that supposedly will give them their greatest wish if they just have the faith enough to walk through the door or whatever they would find it undignified to walk through like they they they're worried that uh it's not going to work or they think that they they come up with these excuses of like well you know i'm totally fine i'm i don't need anything why would i need anything from like faith or or being able to understand this thing and look i approach that i i think of it that way because of course i'm a little biased i i'm a christian so i have a certain philosophy of life that just you know that of course is my reading obviously but i think it's really well supported by the film because i think by the end you have this the the stalker who's like ranting and raving as quote one of god's fools but saying these things of like they I can't believe these modern men, they just don't under, they don't think they need anything. They want to preserve their dignity and their pride too much to, to put their faith in anything. And they wouldn't just do the simple thing of walking through the door in order to find out whether it's true or not, because they'd rather not, not even suffer the indignity of walking through and it not working or not being real in some way. And, uh, that's basically my reading of stalker, but that also kind of neglects the fact that there's like, you know, an hour and a half before they even get to the room and debate whether to walk in or not. That is just sort of filler of them being like, oh, this place is scary. Ooh, and then we're going to walk into the next place. That's scary. We pro- Oh, don't do that. That would that will aggravate the room. Okay. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're still walking now. And then, you know, sleeping and having dream sequences and whatever. That's about it. So were you not? that big on that segment of the movie or were you just I was less interesting I was uh, how do I put it I don't have anything to say about it I was interested in it in the moment I was I but by by the time they get to the tunnel and they're gonna draw lots to walk down like this pipe that looks really scary I'm like there's nothing's gonna happen they're just gonna walk down the thing and then walk into the next room and nothing's gonna happen come on and then you know what nothing does they're just really afraid of it and then they walk into the next place and it's really spooky and there's like sand everywhere and uh 
and they're really spooked out by it. And then they walk into the next room and then they're like, well, this is the final room in there. That's where we got to go. Like it, like I, it's not that I was uncompelled. I was just like, I very quickly became a little, I don't even want to say disappointed. I, I was a little, I, I kind of wish there was something there other than sheer fear of the unknown. Because it constantly feels like the only thing that they're afraid of is fear of the unknown. And so when at the end they don't go in, I'm like, yeah, because they're afraid of the unknown. But I don't think everyone is this afraid of the unknown. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know, because I'm I'm just on the face of it, just based on what we met in the movie, without getting into my own theory, which I will shortly, but mm-hmm. we, I think we know for sure that what is in the room is not entirely unknown, because we have some precedent for it. Sure. Stalker talks about his mentor, Porcupine, who went in with, was it Porcupine's brother or the Stalker's own brother? It was somebody's brother. Porcupine's brother, I think it's, it's trying to be, yeah. Yeah, and... He, his brother died along the way in the zone, and the brother went into the room and had his heart's desire fulfilled, uh, which was a big pile of money. And he was just so disappointed by himself mm-hmm. because he and, and there's I, what I really love is there's not an element of doubt there. It's not, or I don't, I don't think there is. You can see it, but I think it's more interesting if it's like, no, the zone gave him what. That was his heart's desire. It wasn't a genie style, ooh, we tricked you, but like, no, that was genuinely what he wanted. Mm. And he was so terrified and upset by that that he killed himself. Because, like, yeah, that's that's probably a pretty reasonable reaction. Like, oh god, I have just been proven by a divine force, just no doubt whatsoever. Essentially, God has come down and answered, like, hey, by the way, you're a piece of shit. And that implication, I think, is is what they're terrified of, or one version of it. So I don't know if you can say that, well, there's this fear is kind of groundless, or I, I think that that's a, a pretty easily understandable I, thing. Okay, all right, let, let me let me change that then. I don't understand why they're afraid of the zone. It's like a scary place, but they really do not renew that fear from moment one when they step in to the moment where they finally go in. They're finally at the threshold of the room. They don't have any... Nothing scary happens to them. The freakiest thing that happens is them, like, looping in a circle. And then... Or or that moment where maybe, like, they think that someone spoke when they didn't. Like, really? That's it. That Like, that. that's the whole, like... They're really afraid of, like, the mind games of the thing. And well, basically, yeah, but... There are things that happen that, um, I mean, the first thing is that the stalker is there because he knows the zone so well mm. that I think the danger of the zone is, is very well implied that if the stalker were not there, you would be fucked. And you can disagree, but just the subtle, the subtle, you know, notes that we get are just like, yeah, sure, they are just kind of walking through a tunnel and looking really scared, but mm. Tarkovsky's that kind of filmmaker where every frame is perfect enough and perfectly paced enough where I bought and I, I'm not, I'm not, I, my formal, my formalist analysis is not on point enough for me to even say this is exactly the reason why it's so unsettling. But sure. I bought that they were having an internal war at any moment, even if nothing happens. But I mean, right. that's, 
I That's bought that like... they were having an internal war. What I didn't buy was like why I guess I guess what I didn't buy was like why they should have an internal war after nothing happens for because they are well, they trying have to give the... you the impression of time in this movie. I mean, it's Andre Tarkovsky. He's trying to give you the impression of time. He points a camera at something and then he just lets the camera play forever. <laughs> They're trying to make you feel like you went along on a journey with these guys. And when I went on this journey, the thing I kept thinking was, oh man, they're, they, it's been a long time that they've been here and nothing scary has actually happened. And so I guess what I didn't buy was why they should be so afraid of like, oh, well, this tunnel looks a little scarier than the last tunnel or or this room is like full of dust, which is kind of weird. Any one trap is more perilous than the last one. It's mm-hmm. just that they're getting closer and closer to the room. And as they talk with each other, they're just starting to realize their own personal deficiencies and everything that's wrong with them that exacerbates more and more and more. And they're like, well, maybe my heart's desire is actually not fulfilling because the writer and the prep professor specifically are more at odds with each other. Sure. Um, I mean, the writer's kind of at odds with, with both of them, but they have this conversation about how like fucked up and empty each of them are. Like they're just laying each other bare and that I think that these things, it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts thing where the zone is just exacerbating all of their worst qualities and aspects. I'm getting a little bit, I feel like I'm burying the lead. Yeah. I think Uh, you need, I think you need to come out swinging with what you got. Yeah. So the way I interpreted this was primarily about the experience of being an artist. And I saw the three central characters as, different representations of what Tarkovsky thought of as the creative process. Like kind of an ego in superego thing where all distinct parts of the mind operating kind of in concert, kind of in conflict. Not directly mapping onto those concepts, but that I, same kind of idea. Okay, I'm definitely with you in the writer, because I definitely was like, oh my gosh, this is this is such a self-insert that it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that one for sure. That's the most on the nose because he is a creator, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that the way it breaks down is this. The writer is the artist who is self-conscious of himself as an artist and his identity as a creator. And he thinks that aspect, of it, he thinks very simply about, this is my relationship to my art, to the consumers of my art. This is the part of me, motherfucker. This is the part of me that self-consciously has determined, I am a creative. I am a person who has creative capacity and everything that goes along with that. I think the professor is the formalist. He's the scientist. He's Mm. the cynic. And Tarkovsky, he's a great formalist. He knows the medium. He knows the art back and forth. And I think that... He knows his his medium. You're right. He has a technical expertise. I I think that that's where the professor comes in. And and I think that the room is kind of the the heart of creativity or the heart of art in a sense. And the professor wants to understand it. He wants to dissect it. And he also kind of wants to destroy it in a sense, because I think that the, the I mean, literally he does. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that in a metaphorical sense, mm. a technician or the, you kind of want to, 
Oh, I got this. I got this. I got this. You hate Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, has one of my favorite quotes about humor, where he says, if you try to dissect, uh, dissecting humor, a joke is like uh, dissecting a frog. Uh, Not much is learned and the frog dies. Like that, like that's the approach that you're thinking about when you're thinking about this guy. It's like he wants to take apart artistic creativity and try to understand it, but in the end, he's going to also like destroy it. Yeah, and ultimately, he decides not to destroy it because not because not in the sense because I think he realizes like, oh, this is a good thing that should be preserved, but because I think he just he he kind of gives up on the idea that anything can be destroyed right. because. His idea is to, to reduce something to zero, to obliterate it, is in a way to understand it completely, because once you make it nothing, then there is nothing to understand, and you have understood it in its entirety. But if something can't be destroyed, then it's just a futile effort. And when he's picking apart the bomb and, and throwing it away, it's just, all of them are kind of in this defeated state of, I we can't get to the heart of this, we can't understand this, we don't even know what we want. Right. I mean, that's what the the writer says, where he's like, who knows why I want the things that I want? Like, yeah, everyone's favorite quote, apparently, from this movie. There's a lot of good things in this movie. Yeah, there uh, is. That's really. And that was one of them. That's deep as hell. (laughs) Which brings us to our final guy here, Stalker, if you'll allow, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, go for it. So the faith part is manifested most strongly in this faith and religiosity. And the way that I think that kind of works here is the writer is the artist as somebody who thinks of themselves as an artist, but is disconnected kind of from the source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, once you have that initial spark of inspiration, that spark of creativity, and you hammer it into something at that point after, and only after that you become the artist, the writer, the creator. But the stalker is someone who is enamored with kind of the, if we're, if we're reading the zone as kind of the collective unconscious, which I am in this case, mm, then, then the soccer is somebody who traverses that, who's familiar with it, who gains the inspiration from it and who loves it very deeply. And who mm. feel kind of like animated and inspired sure. by just the, the totality of, of the universe and the, you know, the spark of creativity that the room represents. Um, and in the end, he's disgusted by the writer and the professor. And it's, it's fair to say, you know, it's, I mean, my opinion, I think, is that what we most hate, we most resemble, like the parts, things that we most hate in the world are kind of like the parts of ourselves that we most resent. So it makes sense that the stalker is disgusted by his companions and just feels like, you know, they, they don't understand anything, like they're nothing, they're their way of looking at the world is all wrong because they're him, but they're him in different stages of the process. Different stages? Of, oh, different part, like, oh, different stages of the artistic creation. So you're saying that Stalker is like the, that Stalker, Stalker, like that's his name. Uh, yeah. Like this Stalker is the end of the process. He's the artist when he has completed his work? Or? No, I don't think it's necessarily, it, it's, it's um, proceeding linearly. I think all of them are simultaneously at work. Just like all aspects of a human brain are simultaneously at work. I don't think one is necessarily being vaunted above the others. 
I don't think that Tarkovsky is necessarily saying that. Well, you know, pure blind faith is, is what you need to go forward. And it's kind of like, I don't think there's any kind of value judgment being prescribed here, at least in this framework, because it's, it's about the torturous journey of discovering yourself and humanity and everything. Um, and then by the end of that journey of discovery, you realize that you kind of know less than when you went in, but mm. you've got something to show for it. And in this case, it is the movie stalker. So, hey, you know, it's, it's something we don't ever have to understand. And, and, and this, this is kind of a, it's, it's a testament to the fact that you don't have to understand something in order to create something beautiful from it. The presser is wrong because to seek to understand it completely is one and the same drive to destroy something. Which is one of those things that I... This... Okay, so this is going to be weird. I just saw Asteroid City, right? Did you sure. see Asteroid City? Did you get a ch- chance to check it out? Uh, no, sir. It does the tenet thing that I hate because I feel like a lot more movies are doing it now. I can't think of another example, but I, it feels like it's in the air where it does. It says like, hey, don't think about the movie too much. <laughs> like it it like basically tells you that mm-hmm. at, at near the end of the movie. I won't spoil it, but it has sort of an ending where a person of authority is like, no, 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 you're just feel it. Just, you know, just make a movie or whatever. Just be an artist. And, and so I, I can push back against that sometimes when it feels like you, your reading feels like it ends up sort of at that same place where it's like, don't think too much about art. Just... Can I clarify it a little bit? Yeah, please, please, please do so. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that it's saying don't think about it or don't try and think about it. Okay, I think sure. that the idea is that ultimately it's, it cannot be fully understood. It's something that you can you have you kind of have to give up on the idea of completely understanding it because to understand right. something and to think about something is different because to think about something is incredibly productive oh, because sure. your brain is bouncing off of it you're chewing it over and I think that kind of what's what's being said here is the process of grinding away at this unsolvable question is what creates art mm. and introspection can be poisonous and it might be good and this in the case of stalker i think ultimately it's it's more poisonous it's more negative but it's still productive it still creates something and it, mm-hmm. it doesn't create something for these characters because they come away with nothing but i think it, on a metatextual level we're to understand that what they created was the film stalker the story they created even sure. if the characters within their own world end up with nothing is is what you know, comes off of that. Like the, the industrial runoff of right. their quest was, I can, was the film. Okay. I can see that now I can, I can see where you're coming from because that is an interesting reading and I can definitely see where, you know, some of those links that you're talking about to, towards artistry. And obviously, like I said, you know, this is clearly, there's a clearly a Tarkovsky like stand in here, at least in the writer, if not literally at all of these characters who I can totally see. What then do you make of the mother and this this child at the end? Because the mother will address the camera and tell us, "Hey, uh, this all sucks." And when I when I think about this, I'm thinking about faith, right? So I'm thinking about this like she's like, "Yeah, he's kind of a weirdo. He doesn't he he's you know I don't 
completely get where he's coming from but she also professes a very similar thing where she's like the point isn't shouldn't be to like uh have whatever you desire your desires should not be fulfilled otherwise you will never be you won't be happy because like like she talks about like struggling with their marriage and everything and she's she's saying that like the struggle is what makes the marriage worth it what makes the marriage something that's uh you know powerful marriage whatever relationship whatever you want to call it and how everyone wants desire not their desires even though they think they want their desires they actually want to have that desire does that make any sense like that's the thing that she's talking about and i think that that really relates towards this like faith point for me because i think that it's sort of this idea of like he doesn't he doesn't get that people are inherently broken and want things that they shouldn't have and so they actually turned away because they're the smart ones they don't they understand the fact that you shouldn't get everything you want he doesn't understand that part of human psychology for some reason this this stalker boy right um and, and so i want to know how it fits how how this woman fits within your reading of this film so that's something i would have to think a little bit more about because right. first of all i just want to say that whole segment felt very literary um oh, sure. the Strugazzi brothers they did the original novel and i think that they did the screenplay for this as well and hmm. i think that the idea of a, a character addressing the camera it, fe- it feels like at the end of a first person narration oh for sure they kind of break away from the action and address the reader directly Individual but, scenes in this can feel like a play when they're sitting in front of the door, like wanting to walk in or not walk in. You can picture this happening where there's just a doorway erected in the middle of the stage and the, the people are deciding whether or not they're going to walk in the opening scene where they're in the small underground like apartment sort of area or maybe small house or hut or whatever it is uh that is all very play like where it's all shot from one angle and everything i think that in general this gives this kind of you know it's this set like vibe it, it it works for this movie yeah but as far as how it fits in there i mean i, I think that what it could be and this is something that i i'm kind of having to spitball on the fly here because i just haven't it, it's a very dense film and there hasn't there are some aspects that are undercooked of my reading, mm-hmm. but I would probably think of it as acknowledging that the final humanity of the artist, and mm. if we're using the stalker as kind of our fulcrum point here, then kind of the quite the, the like beauty and dignity afforded to like all people that that I don't know. I don't know. I think I might have to kind of filibuster on this one because sure, sure. Well, what I mean to kind of the, turn it around on you. What do right. you think is then the kind of reading from her from the perspective more so centered on faith? Because I, think I don't that, know if she super cleanly fits into one or the other, but no. try and change my mind. I think that when I think about this faith thing, what I think about is that she's someone who says she literally says he's God's one of God's holy fools or whatever. And yeah, she's like, like you got to love that. him, but you have to understand that people don't want their problems actually solved. And if they think that if they go to this threshold or whatever, they're going to realize suddenly at the last second that people want to desire something. They don't want they don't want to. 
they, they'd rather have their God to be unknowable and this thing that they can keep in the back of their mind, or I don't even mean like God in general, but they, their, their supreme intelligence, there's something beyond their magic, whatever it is, they'd rather have it be unknowable. And it's not because they're like atheistic or something like that, which is what uh, the stalker is saying. Instead, this, this woman is saying like, it's because they want to have something to desire. They want to have something to want. And for ex- and it, like almost as an example, she gives her whole relationship to the stalker by saying like, you know, my marriage has been pretty awful and it's been, it's been really tumultuous. I mean, but I would not change anything about it because I want to want things. And the ending, and I, uh, I, this bleeds into the mutant child at the end, who is implied to be like from the zone or whatever, she's able to move these glasses with her mind. And you know what pl- what stinking plays over it? The most obvious track in the world as, as, as it's playing it, it's ode to joy. <laughs> like it's yeah. like saying it's so happy. Isn't this the, like the, 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 the song maybe in all of human history that most signifies to anyone who listens to it. Oh, this is a happy moment, right? It plays over this thing saying like, do you get it? Do you get it? And it's saying like, there's happiness here in the fact that like she, you know, there, there's real magic and it does exist. It's this mutant child, this, this thing that exists that's different from everyone else. Real magic does exist. But, and, and finally there's the catharsis of knowing that like, you know, the room again you've seen this whole like this this whole place this zone and nothing ever actually happens that's scary or whatever it's just the paranoia of the stalker but it's saying that the the stalker was justified it is true there is real magic out there and people can find it but like you know it's kind of nice to have it unknowable sometimes or whatever and this like ode to joy is saying like there is happiness in the world you know like there is happiness in that magic I, i i think that that is where that whole thing wraps together having that scene of the woman talking directly to the camera and saying that right before the scene of the mutant kid really hit that home home for me i i don't know i didn't necessarily read the final scene there as being as being positive i'm not sure but okay well do you think it was because again ode to joy is just so stupid blunt and i mean that in a good way it's a good moment like but it's so because it's so blunt that you is could, it parodic? It could just as easily be, yeah, like a an ironic thing. Sure. Like, I think something that's so on the nose there, it leaves that open for, for either way. Mm. And it, it's, it's also the Walker like, effect. <laughs> no. No. It doesn't really make sense. Uh, but I just, I have a hard time reading the way that scene is framed as being like, not kind of sinister in a way. Because I mean, we should acknowledge that they have the piss filter in the outside the zone world, and in the zone they, it changes to color, right? Mm-hmm. Um, really except cool. outside, when the kid is around, and the kid is centered in the frame, not always, but near the end it happens more where it, his child is, you know, affected by the zone. It's been noted. So the idea is that, like, because, you know, he sort of passed this on to his kid, that she's kind of this, this creature of two worlds. Who mm-hmm. manifest in psychic abilities, and there was something, and you can call me crazy here, but there was something about how she had those three glasses that she pushed, two to the edge and then one over the precipice. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's accidental that 
there were three glasses oh, yeah. to match our three protagonists. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them goes like, over the edge and one yeah. of them is sick and raving mad right now. And her being a manifestation of the zone. Mm. Like, I, it, it almost feels like, yeah, that's a domino to topple because the, re- the other two are on the precipice. Right. So, yeah, right there. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't exactly have a counterpoint to it to say, yeah, here is my negative reading of that. But I, yeah, I, I don't. It's complicated. I, I'm not trying to de- even debate you saying like one of our readings is correct necessarily. No, what, I, I'm just challenging really your say. right. I, or I'm not. I'm saying these can exist simultaneously, but right. I'm, I'm just challenging. I, I'm not saying that either of ours is correct and the other one is wrong. I'm just saying either of us could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I think both of us are, are more right than we are wrong now. I think so too. I think I, I could definitely see where you're seeing that this is like a movie about an artist and I would not even dispute that. Overall, again, with Tarkovsky, I think we just have to like lock him down and be like, all right, well, gonna rewatch this at some point. <laughs> yeah. I don't know and what that, I'll be I think in the you'll like it for. better the second go around. I also true. want to say, look, it was a super long movie. It's it's two hours and forty minutes, and it is slow. I didn't feel the length as badly as I did with Andre Rublev. And I think it's because there's almost always something, uh, someone's, I don't need, I don't know. I don't have any reason for it. I was more interested. I was more locked in this time around. Maybe I'm just getting used to, I knew what it was going to be going in. And so I was, I was into it. I was also, really quickly excited about the very simple thing of like they're trying to go to this place you don't have to understand very much except that there's this place that they really want to go to and there's going to be dangers along the way and i think that that like simple idea really kept me going through through the whole thing because i i never felt confused i always understood what the goal was and uh i think tarkovsky if he wants to make these over Overlong, uh, really slow bits of cinema. Then he should he should keep doing that. Yeah. And, w- and with that, I think we're gonna get to our rankings for this week. Uh, I have pretty low rankings for how much I liked the movies this week. I uh, I got some heavy hitters in there. Oh, how about well, I go first? I feel like I haven't gone. Yeah, first go first. Okay. So I'm realizing the logistical issue of this whole thing, which is when we get to a thousand plus movies, I won't know where the fuck I have them, and I'm just going to be scrolling up all over <laughs> the damn place. I'll probably need to make a note of it separately, like Journey of the Beginning of Time, number 58. Right, so right. I know, but speaking of, Journey of the Beginning of Time, number 58. You put it like last? I, Holy cow. Uh, the no, last of last of all of... No, 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 out of 73. No, 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 I, I'm with you, I'm with you. I meant oh, you put okay, it last okay. of the four we, we covered this week. You're going from the bottom here. Yeah, well, like I said, this is something that I think really deserves a place in the collection, even though I would say most of the things that we watch are probably going to be better, and to me personally better, but to me, the the idea of the quality of the films and whether they should be represented are are kind of separate issues. Mm, Yeah, sure. So, uh, Which I feel like is kind of the inverse of how it usually is, because I'm usually like, hey, fuck you for thinking that objective, <laughs> the movie's good and how much you liked it are different. They're, they're the same. But, right, right. Uh, but in, no, in, I get in this what case, you're saying. We're asking yeah. different questions. But yeah, sure. it's just coming in just above the hero and just under true stories. 
two nice, light, delightful films next to each other. Yeah, and, that uh, deserves for, sharing a space. From your reading of uh, True Stories, which I read as a little bit heavier, a little bit more complex than you did, but mm-hmm. uh, from, from your reading of that, that makes sense. That's sort of the light corner. Yeah. Moving up a bit to number 45, it's mm-hmm. Time Bandits coming in below Miller's Crossing and above Diablo Wow. Um, yeah, fitting nice and snugly in there before some of the stuff that I think really got me thinking. It's, mm-hmm. it's an eight that's below quite a few sevens. Mm-hmm. It's below Mikey and Nikki and I can remember last rock or show over you, but. Mm, wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's just how it is for me. I'm always right. And there's just <laughs> nothing there is to it. Yep. We definitely did not debate about uh, a certain movie being way too high on both of our lists before we recorded. Definitely not. Speaking of being way too high, probably by your standards, Branded to Kill is at 23. Holy I cow, really, really Sean! Like it's above oh my the gosh. ice storm and below My Dinner with Andre. Oh my goodness. Right below My Dinner with... Those are both two that I really love. Ice Storm and My Dinner with Andre. Holy cow. Yeah, uh, just for right. perspective, I have Dead Ringers at 23. Like, that's a good slot, you know? You're getting into real high hitters. I am, yeah. And it's kind of on the... It'll never... I don't, I'll only ever move it lower and not regret moving it lower because I feel like Suzuki is represented well with Tokyo Director at 16. Sure. But, yeah. I, I want to know, uh, of the ones where it's like, there's an assassin. I mean, we've we've talked about this. There's a lot of these movies in the collection that are yeah. just like, there's an assassin. How, wh- any anything that's ranked above it? Is Ghost Dog still above it? Is Ghost uh, Dog is above it and The Killer is above it. Oh, right. Okay, of course. All right. Okay. That makes sense. And then coming in very, very highly. Just, we've got a little Tarkovsky corner going on because Andre Rublev's at six and Stalker's at five. Just wow. 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 Okay. Yeah. Wait. So, I, I, so not it's really a, surprising. It's your number five. Sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But I, I'm, I forgot about Rublev being so high on your list as well. What are the top four again? You got to give me those again. M, Red Shoes, Walker, Seven Samurai. You have M at number one? I forgot about that. No, at four. Oh, I was listening oh to you were going in back. Oh, M. Red Shoes, Walker, Seven Samurai. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, cool. I, I forgot. I thought, yeah. Okay, awesome. That makes sense for you. Okay, this is a low-ranking week, like I said, for me. Not because I didn't like any movie very much. I, I just didn't think that they were great or anything. Branded to Kill is coming in at number 58. Right above... Uh, Samurai 2, Dula Ichijoji Temple, and right below, this is Spinal Tap. Uh, right above, this is Spinal Tap, is Time Bandits, which is right below Salo. I, again, I liked, like, those movies both I, I enjoyed, alright. I just generally kind of finished it and was like, well, you know, maybe it wasn't, maybe I wouldn't have chosen this to watch right now, but, you know, that's, it's alright. That's right. a respectable place, though. They're fine, yeah. I mean, I again, if you, anything above Great Dictator, more or less, I feel like is good, could be better, or whatever. Journey to the Beginning of Time at is comes in at number 20... Uh, let me just start all over. Journey to the Beginning of Time coming in at number 42, right below Great Expectations, and right above Amarcord. Uh, I, I can't believe you put it so low, Sean. I, I mean... It was cool. There were there were sure some guys who were throwing around sticks and stuff. They I keep on coming back to the sticks, but it's true. Like they were like 
you I feel know, like you're describing cool. it in a way that makes me think I should put I should have put it lower. <laughs> like it was fun. Stuff happened and things happened. Dinosaurs, characters. Okay, but yeah, I feel I like mean, it's better Sean, than all that. Don't you want like dinosaur stickers or whatever? Uh, yes. Stalker is one that I know that I will rate higher when I rewatch it, but it's sit it's sitting at number sixteen, my highest ranker for the week. Uh, lo fi sci fi still a really good spot though. Oh yeah, it's right above Nashville, and which which is above the killer, so it's above your little killer line or whatever. It's right below RoboCop, which was a a big debate for me. But I mean, come on, it's RoboCop, so sure. you know, number sixteen's got to be Stalker. I I really liked it. It's still a big one hitter for me, and uh, yeah, I know I'm gonna regret it one day, but for now, that's a good place for it. And uh, I I lo-fi sci-fi is something that i feel like i should get into more i feel like this is low without a w you know like lo-fi girl type thing where it's like you got nothing exactly going on but just enough that you're like wow this is a futuristic world and i i really appreciate that and uh with that we're gonna come to the end of the episode thank you all for listening please remember to rate review and subscribe tune in uh next week when we are going to actually be doing our rankings right now or doing our uh our picks for next week right now because i completely forgot that we're supposed to do that because i stink um next week we got an interesting couple of movies in the collection because we have sean this is a momentous occasion for us because we've actually we've we've hit the two movies in uh, we've hit a movie in the collection that we have already covered before, and so we get to skip over it for the first time. Because right after Branded to Kill in the order of spine number is Tokyo Drifter, and so uh, we're just we're just hopping right over that to watch uh, one of my most watched movies in the collection, Michael Bay's Armageddon. Heck yeah! Let's do it! Space Madness! And I highly recommend, Sean, if you get a chance, just look up Ben Affleck audio commentary Armageddon best moments or whatever on YouTube. And I, I've seen the video. There, there's a video on there, I know for sure, that you can just watch like five minutes of it. You don't have to watch the whole thing. But holy cow, uh, I'm going to be watching. That does almost reek of research. But I'll see what I can do. <laughs> it's definitely worth doing. I have just watched Armageddon for July 4th. Uh, this is coming out weeks and weeks after July 4th. But uh, I just rewatched Armageddon for July 4th because every 4th of July, my family watches Independence Day and or Armageddon, depending on what we feel like that year. Um, because it's sort of like this, like, it's patriotic, kind of. And I think that really works for my family. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I will not be rewatching I, I, regularly. I will be rewatching with the Ben Affleck audio commentary because it rules. It's really funny. And I own the criterion for it. We also have Laurence Olivier's Henry V. Um, so in the spirit of that, my pick this week is going to be Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Because uh, Hamlet is kind of my boy. Uh, the first time my my girlfriend ever saw me, I was reciting the "to be or not to to be" speech from Hamlet. Uh, low, big Shakespeare guy personally, and so I'd like to knock out both these Laurence Olivier movies. Hamlet is also, if I'm not mistaken, the movie that uh, uh, beat uh, a lot of uh, the red the red shoes in a lot of the Oscar categories when we talked about it. And uh, I want to see let, let's fire this bad boy up. Let's get another Shakespeare going. Yeah, why the hell not? 
And I think as a companion piece to that, may as well do some little, little bit of parallelism here by knocking sure. out the other Michael Bay as well. Yes. So let's get The Rock in here. Like, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Because after that news that came out yesterday for us, 10,000 years ago, for <laughs> the aliens that are listening to this, sure. um, after The Rock like accepted the highest paid film role ever during the ongoing film and, and writer's strike. Didn't, didn't, cool. didn't know about that, but uh, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely making fun of him. And, that uh, motherfucker <laughs> loves squat. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to be a Jack Black type. Where you mm. don't do anything good for ever. Sure, but yeah. Just by being inoffensive, everybody <laughs> decides that they love you. But he's That's just- crazy. Wait, Sean, you don't like, like, we can't get into this, but you don't like Bernie? You don't like School of Rock? Um, I haven't seen Bernie, and I haven't seen School of Rock for like 10 years. But like, come on, he hasn't <laughs> done anything really that good for a while. Like it's that. All right. Yeah. For a while, I'll take for a while. With how prolific that motherfucker is, it's like those, and then brutal legend, and then I am against comedy music as a genre. So Tenacious D doesn't count. Right. Right. I think it's Tenacious D that really made him, uh, you know, like popular. The fact that he has a personality and a presence online, and then you know he's playing Bowser, and he plays a song where he just says the word peaches over and over again. It's the height of comedy, Sean. Haven't you heard? It's random as hell. Yeah, oh, oof. Hold up, spork, purple monkey banana. Hello, fellow humans. Weird normal people scare me. For sale, my sister. And so that is going to bring us to the end of the episode for real. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Tune in next week for, uh, like we said, we got uh, some some crazy movies. We got Armageddon. We got Henry V. We've got uh, Hamlet. And we've got The Rock. We're making a little little Shakespeare sandwich in there with the two pieces of bread being Michael Bay. <laughs> Maybe the most flavorful bits of bread you're going to ever bite into. Um, sourdough for sure. Definitely uh, check us out. Check out the description where you can find our Twitter and our uh, TikTok. I promise. Shout out to the description. Check <laughs> out the description. Yo, peep it. I promise. Some I will... great stuff going on in the description. <laughs> it's it's also worse because now my sister writes the description, so we're just like straight up insulting her. No, but actually, uh, you know, we have a. I promise I will post more stuff on the social media and stuff. If this is an Anthony Reviews podcast. You can check us out at anthonyreviews.com. And as always, oh, and thank you to Tyler Frazier for our editing. And as always, uh, I, I need to, can I interject here? Oh yeah, sure. I need that to end this episode with a going prayer on. request. Everybody hold up your arms. I'm Goku right now. I need, uh, I need the spirit bomb. Give me the energy. Pray for me right now. Send your prayers back in time. But, but I am you fucked. Seem, you some seem to think that 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 prayer requests are like you know clapping your hands if you believe in fairies, Sean. No, prayer requests are <laughs> holding your hands up and saying, "I'm gonna give you my energy, please, Sean. Don't be fucked. Don't be fucked. You can do it." And if I'm fucked, you all are gonna have to answer for it. <laughs> all right, that's it. That's how it ends. <laughs>
They just go on to start podcasts. <laughs> it's, 